This is the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. Rule number one is you have to believe in yourself. You're the only one who doesn't think you belong in this appointment. The prospect has already validated your existence by scheduling time with you. Get it through your head you belong here. Go in there, crush it, and close the deal. A place where sales professionals can come to learn from other sales professionals and thought leaders that have mastered their craft. The difference between a good salesperson and a best-in-class salesperson is only two minutes. By spending an extra two minutes on what you might think is a mundane task in the sales game, you separate yourselves from the pack, you grow your book of business, you close more deals, and you retain your accounts. As well as their peers who are still striving for perfection to achieve their why. I have a wife and four kids. Failure is not an option. Real sales professionals. Real stories. Real results. It's no different than being a professional baseball player. You can't be a one-trick pony. You have to be a five-tool player in order to succeed in this game. This is the Power Producers Podcast. Production redefined. Are you ready to feel the power? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. Kyle is out because I need him to make money in the insurance world. So I'm riding solo today, but I think I can handle myself. I've got a dynamic guest, Mr. Sean Castrina, and he is going to talk about all things from entrepreneurialism to sales to his books that he has written that are bestsellers. Just a lot of things we can get into. So before we do that, Sean, welcome, number one. And number two, how about giving everybody just kind of the overview of who you are, how you got to where you're at today, and then we're just going to dive in and get after it. All right. So I had my dream job. I just figured I'd eventually become a CEO and, and, and run the world. And, and in my mid-20s, I heard the words you never want to hear unless you're in an automobile. I heard we're going in a different direction. And that was a change in leadership. And at that point, I knew that I'd never be an employee again long term, that that was kind of, you know, I just knew there was no security. And that even though our whole life we were raised to believe, you know, you go to college, you really want to do great, go to grad school. I was in grad school and um, and get a great job, work your way up and be the CEO. And, you know, hey, everybody can be, you know, you know, can, can go that well with Jack Welch way. And it didn't work out that way. And so from that point on, I, I knew I'd start businesses. Until that point, I never, ever thought about starting a business. I was totally, you know, education, employee mindset. And then from that point on, every, everything changed. And, and now entrepreneurship is obviously what has allowed me to have a pretty nice life for the last 30 years. Well, once you start signing the front of paychecks instead of the back, you tend to look at life a little differently, don't you? Absolutely. More politicians need to consider that. I I, I, I really, I almost think they shouldn't run for office unless they've ever signed the front of a paycheck. I think, I think that there's probably some wisdom there for certain, especially as I look at the gas pump today. So, so talk a little bit about your books, man. I mean, I've written a couple of books as well. Um, Mine are more focused on digital marketing and, just the general outside sales process that I've used over the last 20 years. And I've had some marginal success with the two of those, but I I enjoyed the process of writing. It was interesting. You know, for me, it was, it was absolutely therapeutic. And I know that sounds weird, but you know, 
I don't know about you, but I'm I'm wound tight, man. Like yeah, I'm yeah. I'm I'm 49 years old, but you'd think I was 22 for as hard as I go. And I, I, you know, when you're in that position, a lot of times you're just looking for the outlet. What's the thing that I can do to shut myself in a room? And I know nobody will bother me. It'll just let me release some of what I'm carrying around in my head. And I found that when I was in the process of writing my books, it actually led me to be. Uh, more successful in my sales career because I tended to be more relaxed and less stressed because I had that outlet. Yeah. And I, and I think you also know how to articulate things you've always thought in more concise ways, because when you write a book, that's what you, what you have to do. So I think you become, you have much greater clarity in your communication and you know what you really believe. So it, it really does narrow down what, what, you know, what you're willing to go to bat for. And I agree with that. In my first book, I was sitting out on a beach and I and I always rented a beach house for my roommates from college and their families. And I was just sitting there one day, you know, geez, 2012. And I was just writing like, what did, why had my businesses done so well? And, and the ones that failed, why did they fail? You know, I was just literally just doing, just literally writing on a legal pad, things that worked and things that didn't work. And that ended up being the eight unbreakable rules for business startup success. And that just kind of started. But I, I, but once I started that process, because I didn't like signing birthday cards, literally, I'd have my wife sign a birthday card for me. Um, I, I didn't like writing anything other than signing my name. Um, so, and then I actually really didn't like doing that. That always cost me money. But, <laughs> but yeah, the writing of a book really allows you to get your thoughts out on, you know, you, you know, you, you get to breathe out what you're thinking. And you start clarifying it, and then you realize how much a book helps someone where I would say, I, I never wrote a book worrying about whether somebody was ever going to read it. Like that was not the angle. I was writing it because I thought I had something to say. And at some point it would help somebody. How many people I never knew. You know, it's interesting you say that because I caught a lot of flack when I released my second book. It came out on uh, September 8th of this year and I did it differently. I did it hundred percent through my own website as opposed to doing the the tricks on Amazon where you can uh, yeah. manipulate yourself into a, a bestseller status, right? You know, and, you know, I have friends who have written books and of course they're all bestsellers because we all know how to play that game. Yeah. You, you can but even I, sell 50 on Amazon on one day and you're the Amazon bestseller. Correct. And I, and it's, it's exactly what I told them. I said, if I'm writing a book so that I can, you know, be recognized as a bestseller, I'm writing the book for the wrong reasons. And what I found through the journey, you know, at least for myself was. I'm kind of like you. I, I didn't like to write. I didn't. I didn't want to have to write. And it goes back to the fact I was forced to. You know, when you're going through school, you either write the essay or you get an F. You know, you either write the short story or you get an F. And because I'm so highly entrepreneurial and such a driver, I don't like to be told what to do ever. So I think that the subconscious had me view writing as a negative because it was just something that I was required to do. Once I actually wanted to do it and I approached it in the same way that I approach other things that I enjoy or that I'm passionate about, it changed the landscape for how I write completely. No, exactly. It's like reading a book. I didn't read a book after when I was in grad school. I never read a book for 10 years after that. Why? Because I got forced to read. I got re I had to read books I didn't want to read. So reading it, I was completely turned off to that. And then my son started playing t-ball. You want to talk about a mindless exercise? You'll learn to read or jump off a bridge, one of the two. But you know, he, he and then I started reading again. But I took a decade off from it because you're right. When you don't want to, you know, when you're told to do something, you don't want to do it. 
Absolutely. So talk a little bit about like uh, about your books that you've yeah. written. You know, what are the and by the way, everybody, you know, the drill on power producers. When we get to the end of this episode, I'm going to tell you exactly what to write in the email subject line. And I want you to send me an email to David at killingcommercial.com. And we're going to give away 20 copies of Sean's books to our listeners. So email me. I'll give you the specifics at the end. But for those of you who are waiting for the other shoe to drop, it always drops. We're going to give books away today. So listen to the end. And I'll give a link and you'll get a free book as well. So with the eight unbreakable rules, just for an example, I kind of like sat down and go, why, why do some entrepreneurs succeed and some fail? Just in its most simplest form. Okay. You know, we all know that half of all businesses fail. And I just kind of came up with my formula and I was like, if I could tell somebody and, you know, I founded the weekend MBA and I love it because on stage I can say, Hey, I'm just going to tell you 30 years of what I have seen. Now I, I can't give you the statistics of it, but I, this is where I can tell you. Number one is if you don't vet your business idea, you don't really put it out on paper and see if there's a wanting audience, see where the margins are, see your competition level. You don't lay it out a little bit and, and vet it. It, you you have a chance you have a really high chance of failing because you you're getting into a fight you know there's a rule you never pick a fight you can't win right and that's a general rule we learn as school kids growing up you don't pick a fight you can't win we've done i've looked at guys and go you know what i think you could kick my ass i'll pass on this one. <laughs> no i literally have said that before i'll pass on this one and 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 so but we'll go into a business and we don't do that same little bit of where we eye it from up to down and go you know what i think i can take this guy but we'll do it in business we don't know who the competition is. We don't know if there's a marketplace for it. We have no idea what our margins are going to be. We have no idea if it can continue to scale. We don't know who we need to actually sustain it and fulfill it, but we do that. So like, that was like one of the, you know, a couple of the inarguable rules was, you know, number one is test your idea. Number two is plan, you know, put a little bit of planning in it. We'll plan a vacation, but we won't plan our business. Who's our competition? What are we going to do that's different? What are we going to use to attract customers? How are we going to sell? Why are they going to buy? I mean, I'm just quickly going, but so that they were a couple of the rules. Well, I'll tell you what, man, you don't, you don't know this about me, but I have an online ecosystem that trains commercial insurance producers in how to go produce in the middle market across the country. We've got um, between 350 and 400 users in the community at this point. And 100% of the time when a producer or an agency owner comes into my program, the very first thing that I require them to do is write their business plan for that reason. Yeah. Right. And I think the issue is, too, there's it, it's it's an individual issue for leadership that they don't take the time to do it. But let's just say that they get lucky and they 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 end up making it because their product or whatever they're doing is so good that it's just not going to fail based on its own merits. It becomes a systemic issue because we don't teach that to our team. We don't teach that to the next generation that's going to take that business over or move into leadership at some point. And I think it's a problem because there, in our industry, in the insurance industry, there's there's a, a big rift between agency principals and the, the insurance agents, the producers, the salespeople that are out on the streets many times because you know, this person over here that's sitting in the owner's chair, they want results and this person wants to give them, but nobody's ever defined like not only what are the results, but then work their way backwards to identify the behaviors that are going to be required to achieve those results because you don't have, and then they, they end up with no accountability. So one of the main reasons, that's the main reason why when somebody comes into my program, I want them to do 
a business plan. I don't want to know what you're going to do. I want you to explain to me how you're going to do it. And let's see if there are gaps in that process that we can fill before we ever walk down the road and start. No, I absolutely love it. And my third thing is, is that if you're a schmuck, I can't fix you. I can't. I bet on people. And I know you do the same thing. I've interviewed people and within five minutes knew they were special. Okay. They, if they, if they, Sometimes people have behaviors and habits that prevent them from reaching the ceiling that they could. And I don't know that in the first five minutes, but, but I've met people that I'm like, okay, you know, this, this person's got a little something extra. This person's got a little something special. And I think as an entrepreneur, you know, barring what you said, sometimes you just fall on top of something that's just at the right time, everything goes the right way and you get a level of success that you probably didn't earn, but Hey, you know what? I'm glad you did. But in most cases, you got to be extraordinarily resilient, highly competitive. Like there's got to be a likability about you. People don't work for people they hate when it's an entrepreneurial situation. If you're the, you know, a middle manager at IBM, it's different. But me, I got to hire people. They got to size me up and go. Do I want to work with this guy? I kind of like him. I believe what's coming out of his mouth. You know, the ability to sell. I don't care. Period. It is the number one ability next to being able to breathe oxygen. Once I get past that every day, my second is my ability to communicate. If you can communicate well, man, life get you know, in entrepreneurship, wow, you know, it changes the game because uh, you're constantly, you know, either selling and or resolving conflict. <laughs> you know what I mean? And or yeah, solving you are. the problem. You constantly. It, and you know what? I would argue, um, I don't know that argue is the right yeah. word, but I'd make yeah. the statement that many entrepreneurs are just not good communicators to begin oh. with because you know, it's all up here, right? And yeah. we know what we see, but we have a very difficult time of taking that vision and casting it out in bite-sized pieces that the average person on your team is going to be able to understand. It goes back to what you said about writing the book. Oh, yeah. It forces you to be clear and articulate in what you say and very direct. And I learned my lesson with the Hemingway editor. I originally wrote my book the way I would write it. And then I put it in the Hemingway editor and it was a bloodbath because it forced me to break it down into small bite-sized pieces and sentences that honestly told a better story than what I could tell myself. Cause I tend to write long, more complex sentences and it's just the readability of it's just not that good. That's so funny. I, when I wrote my first book, I met with Ed Hess, who's actually a best-selling author. He's a professor over at UVA wrote Growing to Greatness, really good, really good author. And I remember I sat there, I gave him a copy of my book and he said, why don't you just come meet me one afternoon and we can talk about it. And he literally obliterated it on a whiteboard. <laughs> he said, come back when you have it kind of in this way. And then it, that came into the eight unbreakable rules. He goes, man, we got to narrow this. I got to hear what you're talking about. You know, and it, it's funny that you say that because yeah, I, I wrote a mess and he, he let me know that it was a mess. That's all right. Some, I mean, but again, it goes back to resilient, being resilient, right? I mean, that's the whole thing. I'm a very direct person. We don't know each other well at all. We'll know each other better by the time we get through this. But, you know, I am a firm believer that the quickest way to get from point A to point B is to get from point A to point B. I don't want to be the guy that goes around the block to get to my next door neighbor. I just want to walk next door. And so, um, you know, I think that's another that's another big thing is you just have you know you have to be resilient. You have to be willing to take constructive criticism or other criticism, man. Yeah. When I released my first book, the analogy that I used is it's like you basically take all your clothes off and walk into the middle of a shopping mall because now yeah. everybody can see everything about you and they can say anything they want and there's nothing you can do about it because it's out there. It's gone. And it's a weird feeling because you, you, you feel like you've poured yourself into this work. You understand what you want your messaging to be and you hope that everybody is going to get that 
from it. But until you start getting that first review coming in yeah, and everything yeah. else, you're kind of in this period of uncertainty of, am I an idiot? Am I nuts? Is is what I'm thinking really something that the masses want to hear? And then eventually, you know, the flywheel catches and the sales pick up and, you know, you get more and more out there. And I mean, you know, I'm happy to report the one that we just released uh, uh, in September has already moved over 10,000 copies. So yeah, I'm pretty, which, pretty which pumped about pretty- that. I was going to say, you know, it takes 11,000 to be a New York Times bestselling author. So there you go. You've done something amazing. Um, no, it, it's great. Great writing a book. And I love, like I said, entrepreneurship. So, we, you know, I think the type of person dictates the great degree of the success that any organization will have. And, and then we get into insurance, you know, protect your business. Um, I, 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 you know, I, I spend quite a bit of money and have, very, I have a very good insurance agent that I've worked with for years. And I always tell him, I need you to Look at what I have and protect me, protect my business, uh, you know, in, in, in patents, trademarks, contracts, all that kind of stuff. That was and then marketing. It's amazing how people think they're going to be, especially small business owners, think they're going to be a word of mouth business. I always tell them, you know what? I don't know if you know this, but Budweiser sells beer and they'll <laughs> spend 20 million dollars during the Super Bowl to remind you that. Yeah, it's a it's a rhetorical question in that, but you know, 100%. The greatest companies are constantly reminding you of what they do, and you know what they do. You'll watch a golf tournament, you'll see Rolex commercials all the way through. We know Rolex makes very nice watches, and we, if somebody asks us a survey, what's the three greatest, the most expensive watches you make? Rolex would come up with that, but they're still going to remind us of it. And yet, we think as a small business owner that we can skip that we somehow get to the level where we don't need to market. And my thing is you never, ever, ever stop marketing. Well, to your point, though, the reason Rolex comes up is that very reason, because you and I probably know three brands that are way more expensive than yeah. Rolex is. Yeah, but Rolex markets well. Exactly. They're not the most expensive. We, we know that. And you know, just look at like a Grant Cardone and guys like that. They, they put watches. I don't even know what they look like. like Ferraris on their wrist. <laughs> right. The guy like me, my age, I just go buy a nice Rolex. <laughs> I don't even buy, I don't buy the most expensive. I buy a nice Rolex because a Rolex is just a great quality watch, like a Mercedes. Uh, you, you know, it, you know, it's going to be good for you. So that was one of the things, you know, you never stop marketing, never, ever, ever, ever. Next, you never, ever stop learning. And then you've got to be able to build a team. You are, you know, I didn't give these completely in the order that they are in the book. But if you can't build a team, I've never seen anything done by one person in business that ever, you know, reached the masses and did anything extraordinary. No, I don't think so either. I mean, you know, I, there are a lot of people out there that I follow and look up to and have for years. People like Sarah Blakely, who founded Spanx, oh, yeah, um, Richard Richard Branson, for crying yeah. out loud. I mean, this guy, the just I'm captivated anytime I can follow anything that he has done because it teaches you to think in a way that's different than what most people think, right? So. <laughs> Look, I think a lot of people probably have a goal at some point when they go into business or they get their job, especially if you're in sales, you know, the benchmark is I want to be a millionaire. Like you you're you're successful when you get to be a millionaire, right? And so it's a sexy it's a sexy end game. You know, I want to be a multimillionaire blah 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 blah, but if you want to do that it's the process isn't sexy, right? And I said that, yeah. I say that in my book, the paychecks are sexy. The process isn't, it rarely is. But think about this, you know, you have guys like Tom Stanley who devoted their entire career to studying the habits of millionaires. You wrote the millionaire mind, the millionaire next door, stop pretending you're rich and live like a real millionaire. All of these books. And I've read every single one of them and I don't view them as a nonfiction book. I view them 
as an instruction manual. I mean, and that's the part of it that you have to cognizantly make decisions on. You have to say, look, I'm not the smartest person in the world. There are people out there way smarter than me that have already gotten to where I want to be. Let me follow what they're going to do. Uh, what they did. Means, yeah. I, I love what you're saying. By the way, million, both those, I didn't read the third one, but I met the millionaire next door. I was reading that on a plane. I couldn't lay it down. And he blew me away when he's like, plumbers had the highest net worth. <laughs> you know, it was, you know, service industries. His whole point was that their kids weren't in uh, private schools. They typically lived in average neighborhoods. So they're, you know, and they talk about average the home. Yeah, average home value is two hundred and seventy thousand dollars, and they live in the neighborhood because of the tax bracket and the quality of the schools. Exactly. And so and how, how much box. is that common sense? Right. Like, I mean, we <laughs> yeah. said, here, here's the thing, people, people are millionaires because they know what to do with their money. This is how they live. That's why they're millionaires. So many times we let Instagram and TikTok mm -hmm. and Hollywood and everybody dictate how we what we need to have. Right. It's all about mm -hmm. the stuff. Millionaires don't concern themselves with stuff. They're, they, they're confident enough in their net worth to know if they want that, not only are they going to go out and get it, they're going to write a check for it and pay cash as opposed to, to financing yeah. things they can't afford. But I mean, that's the whole thing. I think entrepreneurs, when you get to a certain level of success, you're at a point where you, you, you can become uncoachable if you're not careful and you don't have mechanisms in place to remain humble. Yeah, I, I speak at colleges and, and I always tell them, I said, listen, every single person in this audience, you know, because they're sub 22, I, I can make you a millionaire if you just do two things. Now, I'm not going to make you a millionaire in 10 years, but I can guarantee that I'll make you a millionaire. I said, number one is the first paycheck you get out of college will probably be the largest paycheck you've ever received exponentially and compared to what you're currently receiving. You know what I mean? You're either making a certain amount. Now you're making, you know, you're 65,000, you're a school teacher. I said, so from day one, if you take 10%, you know this, put it in an index fund and never, ever touch it. I, I did that. So I, I've done that for over 30 years and I am shocked what's, what's tucked away and, and never touch it because the problem is we always want to borrow from it to buy our first house. You never touch it. 10% is just a pure discipline. It's like the ability to breathe. The second thing is you buy your first house, but you don't ever sell it to get your second house. See, you can't buy a second house using your first house. I always say that's the rule. First house is untouchable because it's your world's greatest rental property. A first house is typically so perfect rental, smaller, you know what I mean? And the, the, the payment's low. It's just, a, it's a cash cow. I said, so if you, guess what? I said, I've just taught you everybody in this room how to be a millionaire. I didn't say you had to be a doctor. I didn't say you had to be a lawyer. I did not give you anything fancy. I said two things, take 10% before you receive your wages, put it in an index fund in your 401k, whatever it is, and never, ever, ever, ever touch it. I said, number two is, buy your first home and never, ever sell it to get your second home. I said, if you do, I don't care what you do after that. We can't not be a millionaire. There's no mathematical way. The 10% alone. Out. I mean, the 10% exactly. alone, how compound it. I mean, you yeah. gave them a nice little secondary piece yeah, of the yeah. housing advice. But I mean, you know, I've seen the studies of yeah. the two brothers that came out and one invested from the time they were 20 to the time they were 30. And the other brother invested from the time they were 30 to the time they were 60. Never catches up. The exact same interest rate. And the younger brother who only invested for 10 years had more money at the end of the, of the when they were both 60 years old. Uh -huh. It's just, it's crazy. The problem that we have is an epidemic and I don't want to go full Dave Ramsey on yeah. anybody, but right. you know, the, the problem is before those students hear you say that 
They've been approached by 15 credit card companies that are out in front of the student union where they go get their mail and, you know, offering them a free water bottle if they sign up for a credit card and they have student loan debt and everything. So the one caveat that I would add to what you said is I fully believe that if you can operate debt free with the exception of that mortgage on your house, you're going to be so much better off. And I'm, you know, I'm not a, a huge, huge Dave Ramsey proponent. I do believe in a lot of what he says, but and I'm, uh, you and I are on the same thing. I, what I say is I'm, I'm an entrepreneur, so I leverage money and I think I know how to do it. But this is what I say. If you ever followed, if, if you did follow Dave's, you'd never kick yourself at the end. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I do. I agree with. Could I, I, I always tell a person, hey, listen, man, if you were a young married couple and you followed Dave Ramsey's at 65, you're never going to look back and be mad at the advice. No, he gave not you. at all. No, I I agree with that. And it's not easy, man. It's like anything else in life worth achieving. I think, you know, society paints a picture that, you know, you can go viral as an influencer on social media and have all these cars and money and jewelry and everything else. But, you know, how, how sustainable is that? You know, is it all, is your Instagram following always going to be what it is? Are you able to constantly invent new things and all of that? It's, it's, I got really good advice from a guy. I bet you're going to appreciate this. But when I was working, when I was in grad school and I was working towards my master's degree, we had to do a case study and and, and there was a board of advisors that came in and they, they graded you on your presentation of your case study. And the guy that, um, that, was on one of the guys that was on that advisory board was a guy by the name of Wayne Hoare, H-O-A-R, and he built shopping malls. So Wayne had a lot of money. Okay. And when we, we, he, he told me he liked my presentation. We walked out to our cars together and he said, what do you want to do? He, I, you know, what do you, what do you really want out of life when you get out of college? I'm like, wow, this is kind of deep question to be walking to the car. But you know, when somebody who's got a, a much larger net worth and is older and has the wisdom asks you that you appreciate it. And you kind of want to hear their answer to, or advice. And so I told him, I said, I want to build, you know, wealth that'll change my family tree for generations to come. And he said, then I'm going to tell you exactly how you do that. Get in a non-sexy industry. (laughs) I said, what do you mean? He goes, non-sexy industries breed more millionaires than any other industry. He goes, the richest guy I know manufactures socks. It's, I joke, uh, you, you, we are, we are kindred on this. I, I tell people this, I own home service companies and I tell people, listen, I would install toilets. No problem. If the, if I, if the margins were good. If them, I have all my companies are, are service companies, and, and I, I tell them, I said, I just don't want a business that competes with Amazon, requires artificial intelligence. I don't want to compete with a, with something I don't understand. I don't want a software company because the next mass trap. If it's better, you're you're done. I said, so they're they're my kind of my three. I, I like things, you know. They're they're the three that I've stayed away from, and I joke. I go, I don't have sexy companies. I own an incredible home improvement conglomerate. And I always say, listen, we go out and clean your gutters. It's $980 or $680. My guy was up there for four hours. He was $28 an hour. You do the math. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, he's going to need to come back again next year. Exactly. And I always say, I want repeat that. I want somebody who has to buy from me multiple times a year. I wish it was every day like Amazon, but I at least want it to be a couple times, you know, multiple times. Well, I mean, the truth is the insurance industry to the average person is probably not a sexy industry either. But if you're in it, it kind of is because you know the opportunity that's there. I get residual income. I can make, there is no cap to my earnings. It's as hard as, as I'm and as smart as I'm willing to work. But I agree completely that, 
we just need to get back to the basics, man. It, it blows my mind that we've not done a better job of backfilling trade schools and things with young young talent to push uh, them through that instead of forcing them in inst- uh, into institutions. I pay my tile guys 100000 a year, but it's funny you mentioned insurance because I got to brag on insurance. Uh, when I made the tradition, the transition out of it, I did sell insurance for one year. I stopped only because I had to drive at night and I couldn't see real well. And this was before GPSs, but I made a fortune. It was the most money I ever made per hour doing it. And my first flock of millionaires I ever met in my life were all in insurance. Um, you know, I mean, I work with guys that are like great, crazy, crazy wealthy. First time I ever was introduced to obscene wealth, you know, with Mercedes, you know, the wife had the, the Jag, you know, the house was 7,000 plus square feet. The kids were in private schools. They had a second house and they were chair, you know, I had some charitable thing every year. It was all, they were all insurance agents, all, you know, up in it and had, you know, large, you know, regional territories and things of that nature. And they were all recruiting me to work for them. And, and that's the first time I, I, I really bumped into, a, you know, obscene wealth. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's cool to be friends with a lot of those guys now. <laughs> yeah, my best my best friend, my real estate partner works for one of the top insurance firms in D.C. and, and where I was from. And we've been friends for, you know, 30 years and he's still in it. Um, he had better eyesight than me. <laughs> I'm with you on the driving at night too. I actually refuse to do it. I just, I just don't see as well anymore. So listen, I want to switch gears for a second. Cause um, you know, I know that things haven't always been easy for you. Yeah. Right. And so why don't you talk a little bit about some of the struggles that you've had mm-hmm. and the, the success you've been mm-hmm. able to achieve in spite of that? Yeah. So I, I wrestled division one in college. So I played a lot of sports and in 2011, I will never forget, I woke up one morning with back pain, just literally out of the blue. And I, I'm, I work out all the time anyway, but work up, had back pain, did what everybody does. You call a chiropractor, go in there, that doesn't heal it. So I, I started getting, you know, I got the cortisone shot and then I got hooked into a, a pain doctor who literally worked out of our major hospital. But, you know, I didn't realize you can actually rent space in a hospital and really look credible. And, um, and I realized, about, geez, I, he had me on 20 oxycodines a day. Literally, my friends used to look at it. I used to have a pack of, I used to have to call CVS three days in advance to make sure that they could get the order ready. And then he got me on fentanyl. I was on fentanyl, you know, I'm about 145 pounds. I was on, you know, he had me on 50, gram, 50 milligrams of fentanyl every three days. And then it was 75 milligrams of fentanyl every two days to the point where almost the patch would almost wear through my skin. Uh, you know, I have to put it around back. And um, then he gets arrested. Shocking, right? In 2008, uh, 2018. And I have to go get this prescription refilled. And I'm thinking it's like nothing. Like, I'm just, you know, this is after it was made really big in the, you know, in the presidential campaigns. And we're realizing that paint, you know, that fentanyl and oxy and all this stuff is a major problem. So I go into the to my family doctor and the and he and and these people and they're all like uh, nobody is going to refill this prescription. And I remember going into a really credible place and he looks at me because he knew who I was, you know, and he's like, "You're not going to want to hear what I'm going to tell you. There's not a doctor in the United States of America that is going to refill 20 oxy oxys a day, and there ain't a doctor in the world that's going to even touch that fentanyl thing. So the medicine that you're prescribing, you should have never been. You should have been. We would." prescribed fentanyl at this level, if you were going to die within the next five years of cancer. He goes, how you ever got on this is beyond anything. He goes, what I, what you need to do is you need to get your affairs in order. 
and we're going to, you need to go into a rehab center. That's the only way I can imagine that we can get you off of what you're currently on. I was like on a Wednesday, I go to see my doctor, my personal physician the next day to kind of let him know how in the hell you saw I was taking this, you know, because you do the review every year and you know what medicine I'm taking. Why didn't you say anything? Like, let me know that this is like crazy. And he prescribes me a pack, a box of five fentanyls as kind of like a courtesy since he's been my doctor for so long. And he goes like, okay, you got like one week to get your affairs in order. Like, cause I would have started going through withdrawals like that day I was done. And um, he goes, I'm going to give you one box of fentanyl and then you kind of figure it out. And so I called my buddies in college that night and I rented a beach house and took off that night from North Carolina, met my friends there. And uh, seven days later, I was off of it. I, I read that if I could go five days, I kind of read it. It's like heroin. They're like, if you can go five days, you're pretty much coming down the hill. Now, I didn't realize the first two would want to kill you. The third one, you if you had a handgun, you'd shoot yourself. The fourth one, you'd have jumped off a bridge or lit yourself on fire. Barring knowing all those things. Um, so I was at the beach for seven days. When I left seven days later, I was completely off of them. Um, and then I came back to my doctor who was going to put me in rehab. And I showed up and I said, I, I, I'm off of it. He goes, well, what do you mean? I go, well, no, I, I, this is like 12 days later. I'm like, I, I quit. He goes, well, no, you can't. You don't quit. You don't, you don't quit 20 oxys. You don't quit fentanyl. Maybe what, you, did you drop your dosage or what, what the hell are you doing? I said, no, I quit all of it. Trust me. And I didn't even touch that five pot. I actually had the, the box of five and I showed him and I still have it in my safe just to remind me. I never even touched one of those. Um, and he said, I've never, ever had anybody quit. He said, that's a prisoner of war mentality. So I've never I've been doing this over 20 years. Never, ever had anybody come close to that. He said, if you had told me you were going to do it, I would have tried to prescribe you something because I don't know how you slept. He said, that's what he said. He said, like, how did you sleep? Because when you come off of that, you're like, it's rocket, you know, you're cold sweats, you're miserable. And, um, and needless to say, so I, and so I did quit, but I was a drug addict without knowing it. I never drank, smoked, never took pot, nothing. I mean, I don't think I don't have a problem with it, but I never did any of the three. <laughs> and then I find out, you know, geez, at almost 50 years old, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a drug addict and didn't even know it. Mm. I think though, the fact that you're able to get through that and just stare it in the face and beat it also translates to what leads to the mentality to be successful as an entrepreneur, man, because let's face it. Some of the things you said, like jumping off a bridge, or if you had a handgun, you were ready to, you we know, all experience you know, that as an entrepreneur. we've done it, it whether we, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we've done it in our business journey, right? So it's so true that you said it because now that I think back and I'm thinking, man, I've faced faced up in business that literally I felt like it was the end of the end. I was going to go broke. Um, I was going to get sued. I was, yeah, you, you know. Now that you, now that you mention it, maybe you know it's very similar. Yeah, I just think it's a it's a testament to who you are as a human being, right? You know, and that's to me, that's the one thing you brought it up earlier about being able to read people quickly. I think that anybody who's good in sales has to be able to read people very, very quickly because 
you know, we have a habit of wasting our time. And as you get more and more successful, that time becomes much more valuable and you're less willing to waste it. So you hone in your craft of sifting through the BS pretty early. And I tell people all the time, you know, my first appointments with a prospect are five minutes or an hour and a half. That's it. There's no, there's no in between. <laughs> you're going to love, I, gonna, I apologize to interrupt because this is going to so compliment and you're going to grab back onto this. But when I moved here to Charlottesville to, to start my life, you know, as I, I took a job selling cars, but this is just too funny. So when they come on the lot, I used to say to every person and I never sold a car in my life. First thing I'd meet a person. I go, are you buying a car today? Or are you just looking at cars today? And they'd say, well, we're just looking. I said, great. That guy over there, he's giving test drives today. I'm selling cars today. I was a top salesman. This was over 20 some years ago. I made $5,168. And the top salesman, he's a manager of a car dealership here that I just bought a car from recently. He says, I still never forgot how you dethroned me. He goes, you never sold a car in your entire life. He said, you never lifted up a hood. You never showed any, you never did any of the things that we're supposed to do. And he goes, and you, you, you double, you blew me away. And I told him that secret. I said, I told him, you're really good at showing cars. I said, so I kept sending you the people that were going to waste your time. And I took to all the people that were looking to buy, <laughs> you dirty bastard. Yeah, but you know what the deal is? Salespeople don't ask that question because they yeah. don't have the guts to ask that question. I always say, go for the no. Get the no out of the way. The no only leads to a yes or saves you time. And listen, we could go down a huge rabbit hole because one of the things that I subscribe to comes directly out of Chris Voss's book, Never Split the Difference. And that is that no subconsciously leads the person you're talking to when they say the word no to you, it leads them to believe they're in control of the conversation. So one of the things that I teach salespeople is to take the questions that they would normally ask to get to yes, which is what every sales training teaches you to do is to get to yes and reword those questions so that you get a no answer which is not a bad thing because the whole time you're allowing the person that you're talking to to feel like they're in control of the conversation when all you're doing is you're pulling the strings of the puppet the whole time and you're leading them right where you want to be. So for example, you don't know this, but we focus on workers' compensation in my firm and I'm heavy, heavy, heavy in service contractors. So I know your world very, very well. So you know, let's just say that your experience mod on your workers' comp is a 1.5. You would know as a business owner who pays attention to those things that you're paying at least 50% more for your workers' compensation than your peer group is because of your poor performance in the past, which has driven your mod up. So instead of me calling up and asking a question to get to a yes to try and set an appointment, I open the conversation with, are you happy that you're paying at least 50% more than your peer group for workers' comp? Who's going to be happy with that? Oh, I love happy. that. That's really actually really good. I've always said this. I I tell my always go for the no, but I love how you rag, I you take it to a different level of asking the questions that actually get you. I've actually never heard that before, and I think that's I think that's actually really good. If you've not if you've not read Never Split the Difference, I highly recommend it. Chris Voss is an ex hostage negotiator for the FBI, and he gives you all of the tactics that they used to use when human lives were on the line. And it's a direct translation to the business world. So it's it's outstanding information. And I've probably read the book fifteen times. I took his masterclass on uh, masterclass.com. And, 
absolutely love it. But all kinds of just interesting caveats like that. But you know, you think about it, we're conditioned as salespeople to get the order. And in in to us, we'll just steamroll until we get somebody to yes. But if you can actually treat it like you're 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 the person you're selling to is your dance partner and you're you know you're moving one way and they're moving with you and you get into this intricate dance, you're gonna close way more business that way because you're gonna be on the same page the entire time. No, I love it. I'm embarrassed to say I got his book. I just looked it up in my Audible library and I haven't listened to it. Like you said it, and it's like familiar. This thing's got 59,000 reviews and I haven't li- I got play, download, view in my library and I haven't listened to it yet and, and it's sitting in there. I'm embarrassed. Hey, Voss, another one, okay? Yeah. I'm going to get my royalties one of these days, but yeah, it's so a great book and I think that you'll enjoy it. Well, listen, what have we missed, man? I mean, we've been going we about Are you 35, me? 40 minutes. We, we listen, it's 20 minutes longer than I do anybody else's. Everybody else I get on, I go, listen, you get me for 20 minutes. I'm a Northeasterner. I talk fast. So my 20 is like 40. So we gave your audience an hour. That's awesome. That sounds good. So which book, which book am I giving them? Hey, if they go to SeanCastorina.com, they'll get eight unbreakable rules for business startup success for free. Okay. My newest book is Developing the Entrepreneur Within. That That is 365 days. I teach you everything I've ever learned. So, you know, I always say six failures best heard through a secondhand story and a hell of a lot cheaper. So that's actually a really, really great book. And um, and then my podcast, the 10 Minute Entrepreneur Podcast. If you like something fast to the point, I don't drag anything out. I have incredible guests. I have Ed Milet here in November, and I've had Andy, I've had, you know, you name them, I've had them. Um, it's a top podcast. So you're welcome to listen to that. And I think I've given you everything I got. All right, people. So here's your instructions. I need you to send an email to David at killingcommercial.com with the subject entrepreneur. I'm not going to do spell check on it. I know some of you can barely spell your own names. So we'll let you slide this time, but entrepreneur is the subject and we will give away. You know what? I like that book. Um, just, just the title of it. We're going to do 20 copies of develop the entrepreneur within. So email that to David at killingcommercial.com. And if you didn't hear it because he is a Northeasterner and he is talking fast, 10 minute entrepreneur is Sean's podcast. And I have not checked it out. I'll admit that, but I will be because that's what I like. I don't listen to my own podcast sometimes because the episodes are typically 45 minutes to an hour long. So getting that quick blurb of 10 minutes might be just what the doctor ordered for me as well. Sean, thank you so much, man. I appreciate you going over. I could talk to you all day. Uh, yeah, it was effortless. You know? we, we didn't do a podcast. It was just two guys ch- chatting. I appreciate your time and wish you nothing but continued success. And I'm sure this isn't the last time that we're going to talk. So I'll, I'll talk to you later and look forward to sharing your words of wisdom with everybody who sends that email. Have a great day. You've been listening to the Power Producers Podcast. You can follow Killing Commercial Insurance on Facebook and YouTube. And if you want to take your game to the next level, next level, check out our book, The Extra Two Minutes, and our website, killingcommercial.com.